0: Welcome to the Conversation for Our Generation, where we solve today's problems with the wisdom of the past. My name is Nick Jamal, and today we are going to be talking about how to defend America. And we're going to look at some inspiration that I actually had just yesterday as I was planning to do this. And one of our founding fathers gave us some really great advice on how to defend America. And so we're going to look into that as well, because he really was Probably the greatest of the Founding Fathers. I definitely have others that I enjoy their ideas more, but as far as who they are and what they did for this country, I would say George Washington ranks above the rest. But before I get too far into all that, I want to I want to remind you to go to conversationforgeneration.com to find out more about what's going on and check out the rest of what's going on at the Gen- Conversation for Our Generation. You can also go to conversationforgeneration.com slash podcast to subscribe on Apple, on Uh, Spotify, Google Play, and there's a new one there called Anchor that I recommend you check it out too because there's lots of other great ways there that you can uh, listen and it helps me out as well there because those are now sponsored and it's distributed to other networks as well. So if you're not on those three I mentioned, go to Anchor and I'm sure you'll find there that you can listen to my podcast where you listen to your podcast at. And then go to Twitter at Conivar or Facebook.com slash Conversation our Generation to get the dialogue going a little bit more and be able to interact with me personally. And also I'm on Parlor and Minds at Conversation of Our Generation there. <clears throat> so let's go ahead in to the quote of the week. And this one is from Niccolò Machiavelli. And if you don't know much about me I am definitely a huge fan of The Prince. It is probably one of the things that really inspired me to look more into politics and to look more into the history of how political thinking evolved because really he was kind of the one who took a lot of the ancients and medieval thinkers and put them together and at the time, was really observing what was going on around him. And if you haven't read Machiavelli, I just recommend you go and read it. It's definitely a little dense, um, but it's not too, uh, it's not impenetrable by any means. It's definitely something that you can read and understand. I sure was able to, and so uh, if I can, I would say most people can. <clears throat> but this quote is, A return to first principles in a republic is sometimes caused by the simple virtues of one man. His good example has such an influence that the good men strive to imitate him, and the wicked are ashamed to lead a life so contrary to his example. And I love this quote because it shows the power of what the individual can do in a society that is governed from the bottom up. When you have a republic, when you have what we have, those of us who are out there setting a good example for those around us do influence people. And in the biggest way, people like Jordan Peterson and who I'm going to talk a little bit more about here in a little bit, George Washington, those people who have a national effect on the hearts of those, of their countrymen, even though Jordan Peterson is Canadian, (laughs) it is still, those people are still able to have that effect and set an example that is so so hard to live up to that anyone who's close strives to do so and those who can't just shy away and are afraid to stand out you know they're not ready to go out in the streets and riot and all that or tear down statues the wicked in that case like those people are going to hide away they're going to see because there is someone shining a light out there. When you are in darkness and someone shines a bright light, you pull away. And if you are in in the light, then you move towards it. You you walk towards more light because you know that once you're in the light that you want more of it. You want it to be brighter and to see more. And that's what I think Machiavelli is talking about here. Is someone like George Washington who sets such a great example and who's able to influence his countrymen in such a way that they will not hesitate to follow him. And I think that he took advantage of, I think he knew that and took advantage of that fact when he gave his farewell address, which is what we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. But I think this doesn't just apply to those famous people who everyone knows. I think this applies to each of us in our daily lives that the more we focus on building the good in our lives, the more we're going to attract people who are attracted to the good. And the more people who are wicked will be just pushed away. They will not want to come near the people who are walking in the light. And so... I say that it's on each of us to also help bring this into existence, but we hopefully can find someone who has that broad leadership, that national respect who can do this for us, because I think it's something that we definitely need right now. So to get into it then, one of our founding fathers and, our first president George Washington gave us tremendous advice on defending the nature of our republic and this was at his uh, farewell address that I was just like I mentioned reading yesterday and so he described a set of problems that I think we still struggle with today and I think most of the problems that we have in our society fall under one of these you know broader um this, these broader umbrellas and I think it'd be good to look at what he had to say and see how it applies because he was a very wise man, a very astute political observer. And he was there as the country was being set up. And so I think he knows, you know, kind of like when you go and fix up your house and you at paint and you know that you missed a spot or there's a bubble somewhere and no one else ever notices it, but you do because you're the one who did it. It seems to me that that's kind of The insight that George Washington has into the American Constitution and the founding of America and how to preserve its ideals is that he was there as we were building it. And so any little imperfections, I'm sure he notices and potentially even agonized over. I, I would say that probably most of our founding fathers were worried. I know Jefferson, for instance, was very, very worried about how strong the constitution was in holding back the powerful and so i definitely think that it would be a good thing to check out so so to get started on this the main things that george washington warns us about are foreign involvements and he alludes to both like trade deals and war and all the diplomacy That you know you have to carry out in some respects, but getting too entangled in foreign affairs and political factions, namely parties and the rise of parties that had not yet existed at his time. And sectionalism, which would be like a division by region. So thinking of the Westerners at the time who were living closer to the Mississippi and looked at that as kind of the west coast there, and the Easterners and Southerners all of that, those divisions as well were on the rise between those regions. And so what we'll do today is we'll look at some of what he had to say and reflect on that because I think it's important to refer back to the source on this one because, like I said, I think he's a very good source to look at. But I've written and spoken on these issues in some respect pretty extensively for the last few years. I would say that the sectionalism, talking about the problems that we have where we are divided between us and California or the coast and the middle of the country, right? We have the political factions. Obviously, our two-party system is flawed and broken, and we have many, many foreign involvements, way too many foreign involvements in the fact that we pretty much support the UN, we support all of, you know, most of NATO, even though, you know, yeah, even though we don't live in Europe, (laughs) we're still a huge part of the supporting all that's going on there. We have multiple foreign wars going at any given time, it seems like, and you can just see that we're constantly getting involved in foreign governments and how they're running themselves. So what I want to look at is what he what he identified as some of the problems here and kind of talk on those. So I want to pop open this book here and we can hear what George Washington had to say about this. <clears throat> And so he opens up, just greeting his citizens and saying how thankful he is, and then sort of turns and says, okay, but I would be remiss if I did not warn you of some of the things that I've seen coming. So he says, the unity of government, which constitutes you one people, is now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace of mind, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But it is easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters much pains will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth. As this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously, directed. It is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, You have the same religion, manners, habits, political principles. You have in a common, sorry, you have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. And so, there's one thing that's changed here since, or a couple things rather, that have changed here since he said this which is that we don't really have this common, you know, religion, basic political principles. Uh, He named a couple other things, Uh, habits, manners. We have very, very different ones among the different states. We don't really have a broad, at least not much anymore, have a broad national identity. And I think that that was on purpose, that some of the people who are trying to you know, undermine the american idea um, undermine the american republic so that discord into our culture and in doing so i think they knew that they were attacking a huge basic building block of our society which is that while we have these individual states that have their own character and maybe their own traditions and somewhat unique looks on how the American principles apply based on the founding of that state, the geography, the trials and triumphs that they've had in the past, there's going to be different stories there, right? The founding of the Midwestern states, which are kind of a going west to homestead, instead of the founding of California, which was going west to strike it rich in gold the, the found, those people who were there creating those states and populating those states were there for different reasons they were there, both there for this american dream sure but they have very different views on what that american dream was and so while there's difference in character and everything among the states this idea that we aren't united has really come to the forefront and I think he was already seeing inklings of this kind of sectarianism, and you could see it. I'm reading another book, I think I mentioned, on the Louisiana Purchase. And you can see how hard that was for Jefferson to get that through, because the Easterners didn't even think of the West as anything, and the West kind of was borderline. (laughs) You know, if they didn't get their way, if if the East didn't help them keep the port of New Orleans open, might have even seceded or might have even just gone to war on their own against the French or the Spanish or whoever was cutting them off at that port. And so there were already rising sectarian ideas, but I don't think that they had even yet gotten as extreme as they are now, which is crazy because in this information age, we're in perfect contact with everyone in our country all the time. You would think that that would bring us together in some way, under some some common ideal, but it doesn't. It's definitely divided us. <clears throat> the next uh, passage here, he says, In contemplating the causes which may disturb our union, it occurs as a matter of serious concern that any ground should have been furnished for characterizing parties by geographical discriminations, northern and southern, Atlantic and western, whence designing men may endeavor to excite a belief that there is a real difference of local interests and views. One of the expedients of party to acquire influence within particular districts is to misrepresent the opinions and aims of other districts. <clears throat> you cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. They tend to render alien to each other those who ought to be bound together by fraternal affection. And so I think this is important to remember here is where he's talking about parties that are drawn based on geographical lines. And I think he warns, in, you know, he'll warn of parties generally too. But <clears throat> you, we see this now where basically the coasts and the big cities are Democrat, and middle of the country and more rural areas of the coastal states are Republican. That is not good. And it's not good because, especially when you only have two choices of party, then you don't really have the ability to get into the nuance of your political ideas. You have to vote for someone who matches at least 50% of it, basically, is what you're given. Who who matches a little bit more of what you believe in. And to have a more versatile set of, You know, I think that if we had a 12-party system, it wouldn't be an issue because you could kind of get into that nuance and say, at this level, I think this party's right, but I think at a more national level, this party's right. You know, I I think that a conservative party should be running my state, but I think a very libertarian group should be running the federal government so that it doesn't encroach on what my state wants to do, right? Whatever you want to look at it as, I think at different levels of government, the party Lines that we've drawn don't work, they don't stay consistent. A and B, it's just bad to have two parties to choose from, especially when you have the evil party and the stupid party. Where we have one just trying to drive a car off the cliff, and the other party saying, Hey, slow down, let's not drive off the cliff so fast. (laughs) And so, that's kind of my take, and obviously, I've talked a lot more about those issues. But he goes on to talk more about parties here. He says, I've already intimated to you the danger of parties in the state with particular reference to the founding of them on geographical discriminations. Let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which, in different ages and countries, has perpetuated, per- perpetrated the most horrid enormities, it is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads, at, l- at length, to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual, and sooner or later the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. So, if that doesn't sound like what we have today, where they blame each other, they just simply are not representing the, the people that they're voted in by to represent they're getting revenge on each other they're it's like voting for a reality star to go and chew out the other reality star that's what our politics is falling to because of the party system that we have and it's true that especially if you look at the history of what they were fleeing when they came here to found the united states was there was serious party politics going on in europe all over i mean the french revolution for instance you have party politics rising and you have the guillotine coming out you have in communist russia the stalinites trotskyites and all those and cleansing other people who are in the communist party with them right but they're not in the same party of The party, basically. And I think it's important to remember this because this is something that could really affect us, that we could fall into this despotism that he talks about as one side finally wins over the other. If that were to be the case, there's nothing to stand against the unified party. That's how tyrants turn a broken democracy into a dictatorship or a monarchy whatever you know however the person is oriented right if it's so broken and it needs to be reordered often it's probably a more virtuous person <laughs> but in the last 100 years we've seen that there's been a lot of brokenness and you've had the rise of people like Castro and Hitler and Mao and all these people who make order out of the disorder and all these political parties do is sow disorder in their country. But what can be the solution? What does George Washington prescribe here? And I think this is one that, again, I've talked quite a bit about that. It's up to the individual. It's up to you and me in a republic to be virtuous. If we want to have liberty, we have to find virtue in our lives. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that. But I think he says that much better than I do. So let's hear what he has to say. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with the private and public felicity. Let it be simply asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, If the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion, whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious people. And he packs a lot in there that we are still discussing today. But I just want to first off say, I love the word felicity. (laughs) We don't use that word anymore. And it is a great word that I need to find a way to adopt into my vocabulary. So if you hear me using that randomly on the podcast, that is why I'm trying to work that into my vocabulary more. (laughs) But more importantly, I think this idea that to subvert the religion and to subvert morality are, he says, are wrong. Right? We see so many of our, and, and then I think what it, what really st- stands out to me most is that he says, you know, where is the security for, for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And we see this now. If you look at our politicians if you look at our courts if you look at our legislators our police officers our military they take an oath to the constitution swearing on god right they they swear on a bible they swear on the most basic symbol of christianity of our religion or if you're not christian i think you can swear on like if you're muslim you can swear on the quran or Jews can swear on the Jewish Bible, I believe, I'm not sure, but regardless, people who no longer believe in what those books represent, people who no longer believe in the religion that those books profess, have no reason to uphold an oath sworn on that book, right? There's nothing binding there, they don't fear that eternal hellfire, they don't fear whatever that is, that the consequences of a just God. And so when you don't fear that, you don't have any reason to respect the oath. And we see that so, so much in our society today that these elites who often don't have much of a religion, and if they do, it's just for show to get people in the middle of the country to support them. And then they go and swear on a Bible And then in doing so, basically piss all over it because they know that they have no respect for the oath that they're taking. And then he goes on to say that we should be cautious about the idea that morality can be maintained without religion. This is a thing that people like Michael Shermer and other atheists are talking a lot about, trying to show that. There's some evolutionary way of making that the case, and that our determinism and all yada yada yada, all these things that sort of undermine and say we can have reality without, or morality rather, without religion. You can't have reality either without religion because that is the ultimate reality, which is God. But morality without religion, and I think it's. A fool's errand, firstly, but secondly, I think it's just unnecessary. Why do you need to build something when there's something there that's so true and so beautiful that you can participate in? Why undermine religion when it is so good and so beautiful, and in participating in it, there's a huge eternal benefit potentially? right? What is there to lose? It's Pascal's wager. If you're 50-50 on this question, start going to church. If you're, you know, if you're whatever the church is, just start going and following Christ in some way and see what that does to your life. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're on the fence and you try it, I think you'll realize that being on the fence was just a call to come and to be invited into that life. And as you do that, I think you see how morality aligns more and more with reality, with the religious reality as well that comes with it. And it, and he also makes the argument that you can't have a national morality. You can't have a good moral people around the country without the religion. right? This is the same argument that you hear many christians saying like dennis prager and others saying you can have a good atheist but you can't have a moral atheist country because as you've seen in the 20th century those generally don't work out very well They may start with great intentions and i think that most of the ones in the 20th century didn't actually start with great intentions but even if they do they all fall in some way to despotism tyranny and a disregard for human life and so religion is incredibly important to what to building a republic <clears throat> and so he also goes on to talk about being virtue virtuous he talks more about <laughs> providence playing a huge part you know finding a way to cultivate peace and harmony and how religion and morality play to, you know, kind of have an interplay, and the cool thing here that I enjoy is the the end of this, where, or near the end, where he shows his humility, because he offers all this wonderful and profound advice, and then follows it up with this. In offering to you, my countrymen, these counsels of an old and affectionate friend, I dare not hope that they will make the strong and lasting impression I could wish, that they will control the usual current of the passions or prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. But if I may even flatter myself that they may be productive of some partial benefit, some occasional good, that they may now and then recur to moderate the fury of party spirit, to warn against the mischiefs of foreign intrigue, to guard against the impostors, imposters of pretended patriotism this hope will be a full recompense for the solicitude for your welfare by which they have been dictated and i love this because he's just so humble and says i know that this probably won't change everything this one speech but i hope that it'll at least come up now and then and right now you hear it coming up (laughs) i hear it used all the time When we talk about foreign entanglements, warning against parties, right? Those, those warnings do come up. And I think it's because the advice is so sound and I love the humility that he has here to say, you know what, take it or leave it. I am just a man, even though this is probably one of the most profound pieces of advice that a first leader could say upon retirement is this short, you know, Six, seven page long speech <clears throat> and so he then goes on to apologize for any act any uh, errors that his administration may have made and asks god for forgiveness in any case that he may need it <laughs> for his 45 and actually this is great because as they're tearing down statues here's here's i just want to read this to you because As they're tearing down statues of these great men and people like George Washington, here's what he had to say upon leaving office and retiring to private life. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. Now that I think is one that we have to just applaud to say (laughs) I mean, that's just prophetic (laughs) in so many ways that he couldn't have possibly known what we were going to be looking at today. But he still speaks to those people to give indulgence, to offer a bit of forgiveness and a bit of leeway because he deserves it as a founding father, as someone, a man of his time who spent 45 years in public office serving this country, fighting for it, right? making it free and then helping defend its freedom that is incredible and so for us today what are these solutions what are the solutions you know george washington talked about religion morality and education and in the end i think it comes down to what the individual does as machiavelli talked about in today's quote i think we need to stand up and say stop you know we must destroy these means of division that lead to our loss of liberty. We need to find a way to bridge the gap between states and create an understanding that at the national level, we all have the same interests and stop using the federal government as a weapon against each other. That our foreign entanglements, our foreign affairs should be finding the way to promote the most trade and the best trade. That's pretty much the extent, and defend ourselves when necessary, get the intelligence that we need to know what's going on on the world stage, sure, yeah, so that we aren't caught off guard, of course, but to be involved so constantly and so intricately in everything on the world stage is not what we're supposed to do. And to just figure out a way to remove the yoke of the party system from us so that we can really live as Americans and not as Republicans and Democrats, but Americans with complex ideas about the way the world works and talk through those ideas, not the talking points that we get on CNN or Fox News. And I think we should unite under the founding principles that we talked about last week and stand for what's right so that we can live free and pursue happiness for ourselves in the way our founders envisage for us, the idea for the country that they had, that we should be still living in, let's find that again, let's make that happen. So, thank you for joining me for today's episode, definitely go over to conversationforgeneration.com or conversationforgeneration.com slash podcast to find out more there, you can follow me on Twitter, go like the page on Facebook. Or go to Parlor and Minds at Conversation of Our Generation there. And definitely get, I want to hear your feedback on these ideas. Are there other things that we could be doing to preserve the founding ideals? Are there other things that we could be doing to <clears throat> push back against the chaos and craziness that we see in today's culture? Let me know and drop me a line in, on the blog, on social, wherever. And thank you again for listening to today's episode of the Conversation of Our Generation. Let's get the dialogue going. Talk to you next week.